Hey everyone, thanks for coming back to Real Leaders Radio. I'm psyched today to introduce you to one of my favorite founders. We have today Lisa Stone, who's with us. She's the co-founder and CEO of BlogHer, which went through a recent successful exit that I'm sure you'll hear all about. But Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Sue. Lisa, the way we start out Real Leaders Radio Podcasts is to ask for the three-minute life story of our interviewee. So over to you. Let's hear it. Okay. In three minutes, my name is Lisa Stone. I grew up in Missoula, Montana. I'm the oldest of four kids who were born in six and a half years, and I'm the family beta. That is the root of everything I am. I'm incredibly family-focused still. I live in Silicon Valley with my better half, Christopher Carfee, and one of our three children is still at home. Uh, God bless his teenage heart. I went from growing up in Missoula to Wellesley College, moved out to the Bay Area, became a journalist, got a divorce from my first husband when I had a one-year-old, decided to leave journalism in order to support this child while working on the internet, which is a job that allowed me to stay part of the news stream, but be the kind of mother that I had, which was not on airplanes every single day. And ultimately, I fell into digital entrepreneurship. I had been working as an entrepreneur and digital media strategist for the past 18 years, left CNN for Web TV, then went to women.com, then left for a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, which is a crazy story, came back, developed the first blog network for Law.com, and then had the privilege of co-founding BlogHer with Alisa Camelhart-Page and Jory Desjardins. And today, I am studying user behavior harder than ever because I feel like we're just getting started. Lisa, what was the outcome for BlogHer? When did you found it, and who acquired it? When did they acquire it? We founded BlogHer in 2005 as a crazy idea for a conference. We just wanted to answer the question, where are the women who blog? We invited my old friends from CNN with their cameras. We had 305 women show up from four continents, and we accidentally made $60,000. And we were like, oh, my gosh, what hit us? Over the next 11 years, we built it into a major digital publisher. We reached 100 million women a month using a scalable technology platform that helped us monetize blogs and quality conversations in social media. We ultimately sold to Shino's Media in a merger that completed in October of 2014. And I exited after my year in a day. It's now the number one women's digital lifestyle media property in the U.S., bigger than Condé and first in Meredith, I believe. All organizations I respect enormously, so I'm really, really proud of that. And here's the irony. We still hold that conference. Only today, it's the world's largest for what women are doing in social media and on their blogs, and increasingly also men. What's the measuring stick you're using for that comparison of largest media company? So I'm not using a revenue model. I am using digital reach and involvement of size of audience. So today, She Knows Media reaches a little more than 90 million uniques every month on our websites and blogs, and another 245 million across social media. Lisa, what led you to think that founding a company, I understand that you created this conference, and so in some ways you kind of backed into founding this company. After having all of your experience in media companies, and for the most part having jobs, I'm putting job in quotes there, 
What led you to think that this enterprise would be the right pursuit for you based on this extensive background and working for large companies? You know, it was a combination of data and experience, but also frustration. Being so fed up with the way the market was treating women content creators that I just had to help change it. So I was a journalist in my first 10,000 hours Malcolm Gladwell style. I worked in print. I worked in broadcast. I was always on the business politics and transportation desk, a lot of data, a lot of early data analysis, right? We used to call it computer-assisted reporting before Excel was a thing, right? When I left CNN to go to Web TV in 1997, here in the Valley, people were saying women will never go online in large numbers. And I was like, wait a minute, I actually don't agree with that. My life in the five minutes I have before I fall asleep after my baby's gone to bed, email on the internet is the best thing I've ever seen. And also... The data I was uncovering at Web TV indicated that women were adopting the web at the same rate as men as soon as they could get access to it in rural areas as well as urban. I was early on on the train of women are the primary spender. And if we're creating content that we're going to have sponsored by advertisers, we have to reach the women. But I had a lot of emotional response from people, primarily men, who would say, no, no. Women will never go online in large numbers, and uh, they were wrong. That's so inconceivable as we sit here today, although you might say that still, still, there's still undervaluing. I mean, it's still driving the success of Blogger. In, in some ways, a lot of the work that I do at Merge Lane is based on the same theory, which is if the market devalues the contributions of a certain population and you can build a model to leverage them, it's very advantageous for a company like Blogger. It's an arbitrage play in some ways. But do you think that the market has arrived now and they've realized the power of female content providers? When people ask me, has the market arrived and do people acknowledge the power of women who create content, I say yes and no. I say yes, because the majority of content creators on every major social media platform, except for Reddit, maybe GitHub, are women. But at the same time, when you look at and dig into the numbers and see that women of color are driving the primary growth in audiences on Twitter and on Instagram, and you see the lack of content and advertising aimed at those communities on those sites, it's very frustrating because I think it does not super serve the user and the content creator who is super serving those platforms. So just so everyone understands, what's your view of the potential and the influence that female content creators have in the market? You talked about, you know, they're the largest purchasing audience. I want you to talk a little bit just to make it clear, to make a fine point on this issue in the context largely of media and also of digital advertising. Where does this content creation by community fit in? If we can agree that there is no media today without social media. And we can also agree that if you're going to build a business, you're going to have to reach a social media consumer. Then I am happy to tell you there is literally only one kind of content creator and customer you need to reach. And it's the woman who is leading conversations in social media. Because it turns out that she will not only bring her female friends, she will also bring the men. Women control and are influenced 85% of household spending, including automotive and electronics. And what's more, today, women on social media are using it at least 41% more often than men do on the primary consumer sites. 
So I don't care if you're trying to bring more people into your tire shop or you're trying to sell something you made online. This is the user who is going to convert her friends and family through the social media funnel. And here's why. Over the past 11 years, every survey that we did at Blogger was very clear. The majority of women who read social media have bought a product based upon the advice of who? Another woman like me in social media. And the deeper and more detailed the format of the social media is, the even better the conversion. Here's a great example of that. On blogs, we did a survey in 2012. We found 61% of the average American woman online had bought a product based on the advice of a blogger like me. But on our network of women who read blogs almost every day, 87% have bought a product based upon a blogger like me. Turns out, if you're going to spend money to promote your business, you're going to get far and away the highest conversion through word of mouth from your typical customer. It's very apparent to me that even though you haven't been doing this aggressively for nearly a year, you're still completely impassioned about this issue. It seems to me that at some point, this kind of marketing is going to be called into question in the same way as SEO was 10 years ago, which is that marketers are sort of gaming this authentic social media environment for purposes of actual advertising. How do you feel about that trend and how's that going to settle out? One of the things I love about technology is that it makes it possible to get scale with real storytelling. So if you and I sat down and you coded a bot, Sue, that was going to go dress shopping for, a, let's say it's summer, a dress to wear to a wedding, right? And I were to go shopping with a group of friends for a dress to wear to a wedding. You might come up with a bot that told a pretty good story, right? But I promise you that my story about trying on the dress and finding out that the armholes were too tight on me or that maybe the length was inappropriate for my 40-something self, would be funnier, more self-deprecating, and more interesting than anything a bot could write. The benefit of authentic storytelling is its reality, right? Whether you're reading a blogger like Hick Awesomely Lovey, like Lovey Ajay, or even Lee Drummond, the pioneer woman. These are people who tell hilarious stories about everyday life all the time. It's really hard to code that kind of humor into... A fake story. But here's where the, the technology comes in. I, writing about the too tight wedding dress, too tight, too short wedding dress, is I'm never going to be able to reach the people that you, as the dress seller, can reach using a scalable platform like Instagram or Pinterest or Facebook or Tumblr. And so if you take my hilarious little story and you share it out across those platforms, you have a win-win. Okay. And you're basically saying that the guardrail on abuse of this kind of thread for de facto online advertising is that authenticity is what people are quote unquote paying for. So it will stay authentic. Oh yes. Today's user, particularly as you go down through the thirties and into the twenties and into the teens is incredibly differentiating. She and he, they know what's baloney and they know what's real. Look at the recent success of the Chewbacca mask on the woman in Nicole's supermarket parking lot. Nobody would have cast her, and it turns out everybody should. She is perfect. 
You worked at to grow Blogger for 11 years. How did were you feeling in the last two years of running that company? In the last two years of running Blogger, I felt three things. One was absolutely paranoid about protecting our publishing model in an evolving advertising market. Two was incredibly proud because I feel like the global stage we built for the voices of women and men, particularly in food, was only expanding. I felt like Lauren Michaels building Saturday Night Live in the 70s, like a new talent every day. I was super excited. And three, I felt tired. I mean, seriously, the week after week after year after year of an entrepreneurial schedule, you know, it's a grind. And I, I love it. I'm a workaholic, but it's a grind. Did you set out to sell the company? When Elisa Dury and I made the decision to raise venture capital in 2007, we knew we would end up selling the company because we owed our investors venture capital return. And we were not a company that was going to go public. We were a $30 million company when we sold, reaching 100 million people a month, which I'm incredibly proud of, but is not in an IPO scale. And so we knew we were going to do it. The question was when and how to get the best possible exit. If you were to do this again, start another company after you take some time to focus on some other things, I think, for a little while, it sounds like that's your plan, would you create another venture-fundable company? I will always consider venture as a way to scale a great idea past the competition. I'm really proud of what we built at Blogger, and I am thrilled with the sale to Shino's Media. However, I will tell you that the most important advice I give to any entrepreneur is something we did, and that is we bootstrapped for two years. It made all the difference. What difference did it make? It gave our business credibility and footing. In 2007, we bootstrapped for two years. We had $650,000 in revenue from year two, up from $60,000 in year one. We had six employees who were contractors, and we had 100 advertisers on a waiting list and about 1,000 bloggers. We were cooking with gas. So we were able to walk into a very limited number of meetings on Sand Hill Road and say, this business is taking off. Would you like to join us? That meant it wasn't a referendum on who we were because we were nobody. Mm, I don't know, Lisa. I don't know about your background for this company as qualifying you as nobody, but well, I'll, I'll take that at face value. Well, I'll put it to you this way. Not celebrities, didn't have family money, didn't have personal resources, and we were first-time founders. What gave you the idea to go to Sand Hill Road with this company in 2000? These are, these are not years where they weren't quite the boom, boom years. You were a few years after the crash. What led you to believe you could go and raise money without a venture background? So when we made the decision to go raise venture, it was because we were already seeing the data and evidence based on the model that we had put into place. So we had a conference business, which was proving to be, at the time, it was like 30% of our revenue. It ultimately went down to about 10% of our revenue, which was appropriate. But the year that I had a Neiman Fellowship at Harvard, I had worked to come up with a distributed model designed to leverage the enthusiasm I saw in people's comments on message boards, but in a more beautiful space than those message board tools are. And that was the year of 9-11. And that was the year the blogs took off. So I had already started the first blogging network I'm aware of at Law.com with right. a series of legal blogs. And those were gorgeous $45 CPMs, high ROI both for the writers and for the publisher. It was a model I felt like I already believed in absolutely. We started to use that and we had the track record. 
we had the complete and total belief that the data we were putting on the page, A, were real for our existing business, but B, our projections were very easy for us to trust. We didn't walk in there with an idea or with vapor. Sure. We walked in there with convention. Lisa, in terms of raising money for Blogger and also selling the company, do you think being a female CEO was positive, negative, or neutral? So I think with Blogger, it was 90% positive and 10% negative. And I'll be specific. Positive, boy, having three very different women start a global stage to raise the voices of women and prove that women were blogging and leveraging social media to talk about everything from parenting to politics. That was two thumbs up. People loved it. We were completely credible. And because we were about the grassroots and from the grassroots, this played beautifully from Peoria to boardrooms at PNG, one of our most important sponsors. And we were very proud of that. Totally authentic. It was okay that we were who we said we were as first-time founders, me as a first-time CEO, because the people who invested in our company, David Sandinoff at Fenrock and then the NBC Peacock Equity Fund, were looking for that kind of authenticity. Here is where it worked against me. And I think it works against any introverted, slightly soft-spoken first-time CEO. When the time came to do the deal at the end, there were a couple of times where I felt like a couple of people on my own team felt free to bully me because of my personal interface. That's never a fun experience. But the good news is I had a couple of key people to turn to who were like, don't take that from anybody. Don't let them walk all over you. And I didn't. Made the tactical decision not to be talking to a couple of people by the end of the deal. Very happy for it. And absolutely and religiously memorized Brad Feld's and Jason Mendelson's book, How to Be Smarter Than Your Venture Capitalist and Your Attorney. Right. So that book, for those of you listening, is called Venture Deals. It's a complete Bible. Uh, they're working on the third edition, which will be coming out soon. So keep an eye out for that. That's a great recommendation. I require essentially anyone I work with to read that book is the first thing. Amen. Lisa, let's talk about businesses that women create that are focused on audiences of women. How generally do you think those are received in the venture community? I remember I had a conversation with the... Um, head of New York Times Digital in, I think, 2008 or 2009. At the time, it was Vivian Schiller, who went on to run NPR.org. And she was like, look, is this content by women or content for women? Because we don't do content for women. And I said, oh, this is absolutely content by, sometimes for, and absolutely with women. Because the dynamic that you have in a social media format which is what blogs are, right? We were the precursor to Facebook and Twitter, but now we are of it, is with. It's a conversation. Not everybody's into that. But candidly, it's amazing the degree to which women and women of color in particular are still treated like niche populations when we're in fact, we're together the majority of everything from buyers to voters. And for women of color, the majority of people driving growth traffic on social media platforms. So I have learned the following. It turns out that discussions of gender and race and religious difference and other areas of diversity like socioeconomic differences are highly emotional topics. I have been living in them for the past 18 years. I use data and experience to talk about, for example, the differences 
between how men and women use social media or the lack of difference between the ways women in rural United States versus women in urban United States adopt technologies. And many of the men I speak with on these topics are heavily emotional about these issues. And if they don't have a strong wife, a girlfriend, a daughter, a sister, a mother, or a twin who is in this space, they don't get it. And that is something we have to take. Do you think it's changing? I do. I'm thrilled to say it's changing. You know, remember, my, my investors, my first investors were men. And the first volunteers at the first blogger conference were men. I am finding, as I go through Silicon Valley, I recently had a fantastic experience as a, an entrepreneur in residence at Trinity Ventures. It's what I did right after I left as CEO, just to sort of decompress. And it's generational. Men in their 40s, in their 30s, in their 20s have a completely different mindset about the way women use technology than men who are in their middle 40s and older. Of course, it's important not to stereotype any man, just like it's important not to stereotype any woman. But I will tell you, I think the numbers are moving in our direction. My sons use computers every day with their classmates, and so do a lot of the guys who are now making investments. So what, what are you excited about now? You know, where's the market and your areas of expertise going? How are you thinking about your decision to do something next if you do something next? I am completely captivated by the one eternal thing that has never changed in any medium I've worked in. Print, broadcast, magazine, web, now VR and AR. And that is the power of the human heart to be opened by great storytelling. I am so excited by the way audio and video are about to evolve using both virtual and augmented reality. It's the great new frontier as a storyteller. So what's the earliest origin story in your life around this entrepreneurial thread you know that you've now discovered that's part of you? You know, I have only recently thought of myself as entrepreneurial because I was always someone who was a lot more comfortable in the back row as an observer. I started as a journalist and I'm an introvert who has had to really force myself out of my shell in order to try to do a good job for Blogger. And I really want to thank my co-founders, Elise and Jory, for the hours they have spent with me working on that. Because I was always an observer and a, and a back of the room person, my early entrepreneurial training I think came from things like babysitting and working retail at Baskin Robbins and Nordstrom because it's super hard for me to talk to people because I was shy, but I had a job. So I could go to the county fair for my drill team and scoop ice cream for 12 hours and talk to any cute boy I wanted to because it was my job, right? I had, right. I had a mission and a purpose. And then I absolutely like many teenagers, fell in love with clothes but didn't have a budget and would never have had the guts to go into a dressing room and try on a bunch of fancy things at the Nordstrom that came to my hometown for five seconds before it went out of business in Missoula, Montana. And because I worked retail, I got to dress up a bunch of other people. It was the human connection. Huh. I really appreciate that. What advice do you have for an introvert who wants to create and grow a company as a founder or CEO? If you're an introvert and you're interested in starting something big, something you might even run, 
I think the first thing you need to do is have all your data locked up tight, and then you need to be emotional about it. You need to care enormously about this data. You have to care more about what you're trying to do than your own discomfort. Then secondly, I recommend co-founders because it turns out that one brain is never as productive as three brains playing together with an idea. I mean, read Super Better by Jane McGonigal, right? She talks brilliantly about the power of collaboration to grow confidence, to grow ideation, to grow uh, quality. And I would recommend that. And then thirdly, you just have to go do it because if not you, then who? What's the biggest leap of faith you've ever taken? Okay. Um, this is really personal, and I don't, I don't blog about it, um, and I don't have a Facebook. But the biggest leap of faith I've ever taken was when I made a decision at age 30 to leave both the traditional newsroom and my marriage in roughly the same financial quarter. Both of them had become extremely bad for me. And... Having a baby was such a fantastic inspiration. My son, Jake, who's now 20, was that thing that made me be the frog that jumped out of hot water. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been amazing the degree to which leaving an environment where I was with toxic people every hour of every day, making a bet on me for that baby brought me into touch with levels of creativity that I didn't know I was going to have to have. Thanks for sharing that. What's the hardest conversation you've ever had? And it might sync up with that last story. <laughs> oh, I think the hardest thing I've ever done is the hardest thing any entrepreneur and CEO has ever done, which is to tell people you love that they're not able to continue working at the company because the company needs something else. Yeah, Because sometimes, many times, the company evolves. And as a result, the needs of the company change and it's no harm, no foul, right? But other times, someone simply is letting the company down. Well, and usually in that case, also letting themselves down in some way. It's true. And I, I have to tell you, the most important piece of Buddhist philosophy I've ever read was learn to respond, not to react. Because it turns out just about anybody can leave when things are good. Everything's up and to the right. Money's flowing in. Everybody's happy, right? But when someone is truly in trouble or they're dragging your company and everybody else's jobs depend on you as CEO, they're trouble. You must be as absolutely focused on data and methodology as I mentioned you have to be when you become an entrepreneur. Emotion should be the last thing that enters your decision-making. And when it does come, let that emotion be compassion. It's great because you just talked about the secret for an introvert becoming an entrepreneur being to let emotion through so that passion for your business could come through. And I think that is really, really challenging. I mean, I think this balance of sort of allowing emotions when they're nurturing to your success, like passion for your business, but leaving emotion to the sideline when you make decisions about personnel. It's kind of hard to turn that switch on and off. Boy, is it hard. And that's why it's so nice to be 257 years old, Sue, because I've had a lot of years to make various mistakes and learn from them. 
and learn again. I can confidently tell you that I've worked with some of the most talented people in the business. And I also feel like I've had to let go of some of the most talented people I've ever met. And I've learned a lot about how to treat people the way I like to be treated. Hmm, I think great. I'm getting better at it, but I don't think I'll ever be done studying it. Lisa, I have this theory that we have all received among other things, one piece of feedback basically for our entire lives. And we work on it and we work on it and we try to do better at that one thing. And, you know, you wake up the next day and you get some version of that same feedback. So you get to go back to work on it again and again. And you just say, well, like, I can't believe I'm still getting this feedback. So if it's true for you that you've had that feedback, what would it be? The feedback that I have continually gotten I still struggle with accepting. And I think perhaps I'm just a different animal from the one some people want me to be, but I'll tell you what it is. All right. Do more chest beating. Get out in front more. Own your own power. And I have decided that I don't want to change my version of leadership. I never wanted to be a public figure. And at the same time, I'm not a an eagle who's acting like a chicken. I'm being my version of the eagle. <laughs> and so I love and respect and enjoy Ariana Huffington. And I really absolutely worship Janelle Monet. but I'm just a little bit more Jane Austen. <laughs> and well, okay I mean, so to, you know, you're 257 years old. So when you're 457, <laughs> everyone will really appreciate your work, right? They already do. But I, I think that's super interesting. And I just want to drill a little bit more into that. So one of the issues that I see, and of course I'm generalizing here a little bit with some of the female CEOs that I work with is an unwillingness to see the biggest possible vision for themselves or for their company. And I'm just wondering if I run afoul, no pun intended, of your chicken eagle rule there, right? Like my goal is not to make women act more like men. My goal is not to have women do the same kinds of things that have led to power and hegemony in the history of our human species. It's simply to not see them undercut their possibilities. How do you balance that? So it turns out that scaling the business and thinking about world domination is part of the job description as a founder, as an entrepreneur, as a CEO. You should be thinking about world domination, whether you're running the company or not, because guess what? You want a piece of the right pie, okay? You're building a rocket ship there, so make it as brilliant as you can. I think that thinking about scaling the company and how to drive maximum reach and revenue in the case of a media company or maximize your, your business success means that if there is something about you that is holding the company back, then you should think about putting someone else in that role. All right, Lisa, this has been really, really interesting. And I want you to be sure that going forward, you beat your chest a little bit about your pith because you actually are pretty darn pithy, I just want to say. So <laughs> if there's someone else that's more pithy than you, she must be extraordinary. And for our listeners, I just want to be sure you noticed that we went everywhere from the entrepreneur's view of scooping ice cream all the way to world domination. And I think that's a pretty good summary of Lisa Stone's career and outlook. Lisa, I so appreciate you getting real with the audience of this podcast. It's always wonderful to connect with you. Thank you so much for joining us. 
Thank you, Sue. And thanks for everything you're doing for entrepreneurs with Merge Wonderful. So that's a wrap. Another episode of Real Leaders Radio. Real Leaders Radio is brought to you with the support of Merge Lane, the accelerator for companies with at least one female in leadership and the Conscious Leadership Group. We'll see you next time.